Welcome to Cybercast 2020. I'm your host, James Mersall. We're excited to cover the new year and all the challenges and opportunities it brings. Elections, Olympics, the decennial census, and thus even considering all the day-to-day security concerns agencies contend with, with threats constantly evolving and security offices taking advantage of new technologies and methodologies. Today, we're speaking with Adrian Monza, the Deputy CISO and Chief Cybersecurity Architect at the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service. With the vast number of endpoints across the United States, as well as the great amounts of data the agency processes, USCIS has an important duty to secure its systems and networks. Adrian and I discuss the importance of patching, multi-factor authentication, and modernization to security, as well as how USCIS makes security an important component of its mission and is able to bake in security across the agency. We also discuss the advances USCIS has made in training employees in its SOC and how they keep their security team's minds sharp with creative penetration tests. Finally, we discuss USCIS's successes with containerization in its systems and the benefits containerization brings both for security and for development. There really are so many topics we could have covered that we simply did not have time to talk about all of them. I want to let you know that we'll be returning to USCIS later in 2020 to talk to CISO Shane Barney, and Adrian has also offered to follow up on anything we were unable to cover this time around. If there's something you'd like to hear about from either Adrian or Shane, please let us know, either by emailing me at jmersall at governmentcio.com or by tweeting at GCIO Media with the hashtag Cybercast, and we'll do our best to incorporate your feedback into the next round of questions. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us. It's going to launch into the questions. So as we mentioned, you recently promoted to Deputy CISO and Chief Cybersecurity Architect. Congratulations. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. So what are your current priorities as the Deputy CISO and as the Chief Cybersecurity Architect? And are there any challenges that you're facing in this regard? My current priorities are really taking a look at building architecture and the requirements for our cybersecurity systems. I did a lot of that as the Cyber Defense Branch Chief, but There, I was really more focused on the tools that internally we used to secure our systems. Now, with being in a little bit of a different position of having an architecture role, I'm really broadening out and I'm able to work not just within our information security division, but also across the divisions within the Office of Information Technologies, working with systems development divisions, our transformation division, our engineering division, to really be able to drive security down into not just the things that information security division is doing, but also their policies and practices and the way that they go about doing business. Because ultimately, security is a shared responsibility. It's not just the responsibility of the information security division. It's really the responsibility of OIT and honestly of USCIS as a whole. As I'm sure you're aware, one of the changes that's been made in policy over the last several years is now the associate directors of every agency have a direct responsibility for cybersecurity. And so it really emphasizes that notion that cybersecurity is a shared responsibility. And it's something that I'm really excited about doing. So thinking about security, especially in terms of data, the amount of data that USCIS holds as the Citizenship and Immigration Agency, as the agency that administers immigration benefits nationwide, you have a lot of endpoints to defend and a lot of (laughs) personal data to protect. Don't know if I have an estimation how many endpoints those are, but I'm thinking probably every airport, every entry point into the United States, and that's just the endpoints. So as the chief cybersecurity architect, what challenges do you face in defending all those endpoints and data? And what solutions are you finding in those ways to defend the endpoints? So you raise a good point, and it is really challenging. The biggest challenge really is that one that you discussed of scale. There's a lot of data There's a lot of systems and there's a lot of endpoints. And 
Dealing with individuals at any one of those is easy. Dealing with multiple tens of thousands of them gets to be kind of challenging. So I'll break it into kind of three parts. Let's talk about defending endpoints. That's really your workstations, the, the things that your end users are using to access your systems to vet and adjudicate immigration benefits. Talk about the systems themselves and how you defend those, because that's a little bit of a different challenge and problem. And then how do you protect data? And I actually, one of the key points I want to make here is that protecting data is not exactly the same as protecting the system. The system can mm -hmm. work exactly as designed, and you still might not be able to protect the data that you want. And that's a really important piece. So let's let's talk about defending endpoints. That's the part that, that you kind of asked that, that question about first. And so there, when we talk about defending endpoints, the number one problem that you have is phishing. And the number one problem with that is phishing works. If you get sent enough emails, I guarantee you someone will click on that link. Somebody will open the document. Somebody will enter. Even if they're well-trained, it's a busy day. They're worried about something else. They're distracted. Absolutely. I mean, somebody just makes a, you know, opens up the wrong email and sees the blue line and clicks on it. And, and you know, they realize it after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, let's just take that as, as a statement of fact. So what you really have to do is you have to take a multifaceted approach where you want to reduce the number of times that that happens. You want to make it harder for somebody to gain a foothold when that link gets clicked. And then what you want to do is you want to reduce your response time so that as soon as something bad happens, you can fix it when it's still a small problem before it ever becomes a big problem. And then finally, what you want to do, and this is really important, you want to create a feedback mechanism so that you can make sure that all those things are working as intended. So let's talk first about that whole thing about reducing the attack surface. So with that, step one, patch, patch, patch. And then when you get bored, patch some more. And then if you get bored from that, keep patching. <laughs> you know, we have a sign. I, well, we don't have a sign. I really want to say that we have a sign in, in my boss's office that's from Doctor Who. Yes. Uh, keep calm and patch on. But that's really what it is, right? Our notion is, is that we don't want to give away any freebies. By that, I mean, we don't want to ever be exploited by something that we could have patched. And when you get patches right, just quite frankly, there are fewer vulnerabilities available for somebody to exploit. And now that's hard to do. As I mentioned, that's hard to do at scale. At scale, there's always that one machine that had a problem where the agent, it didn't get updated quite right. And so that gets you back to the feedback mechanisms. I'll get back to that. But we've really invested a lot of time, effort, and energy in improving our desktop patching processes. And we've really been pretty successful, to be perfectly honest. The next step is get your configurations right. Now, most listeners to this podcast are probably running Windows 10. Please, please make sure you've got Credential Guard turned on. Do the basic things. Separate your user and your administrative accounts. Make sure your administrators can't access email or the internet from their administrator accounts, right? For extra credit, for people who are looking to go above and beyond, take a look at privileged access workstations or something else to prevent those high-powered credentials from even being exposed to a device that has that higher risk profile. So get your configurations right. And this is IT 101. I'm not saying anything revolutionary here. And then the final piece on reducing that attack surface is remove your passwords. Just make them go away. Move everything to multi-factor authentication. Now, we've been really, really successful at moving really substantially all of our enterprise applications to single sign-on. So we don't have very many, if any, passwords left. And the best part about that 
when users don't have a password, they can't enter that password in in response to a phishing email because they don't have one. And what's better about that is our mission elements, the folks in the field that do the work of the agency, they've been more excited and happy about this than the IT staff has because to them, it's not a security issue. To me, it's a security issue. I'm all excited about the security aspects of this. You know what it is to them? To them, it's that they don't have to sit there and spend all that time entering in different passwords for every single system that they have to access to do their job. Absolutely. And when you have five or six or seven systems that you have to access in order to do a business process, which is you know not uncommon, all that time that you no longer spend typing in your password, that's time that they get to spend actually doing their job. And that makes them happy. We've removed non-value-added work. And so that it's also fewer passwords that they have to remember. So that makes them happy too. Yeah. See, it's an issue of convenience. I remember exactly. when I was a federal contractor, you know, it had to change every three months. It couldn't be too short, couldn't be too long. Yes. It had to change. I think a lot of people just put a one at the end of their password. And then next time it was whatever that password is two, whatever that password is three. And I guess that's convenient, but having multi-factor authentication is both more convenient and more secure. And what we've done there is, again, we've done it through enterprise single sign-on. So you, you go to one location and you can log into all of your systems and you don't have to enter in a password. It's all seamless. And it makes it just a lot easier for people. So, so that's reducing your attack surface, making yourself a harder target. Next step, make it more expensive for the attacker to attack you. You know, make them have to work harder to have somebody click on that email. Now, we've done that in three ways. First way is we've made it really, really easy for our users to notify us when they receive a suspected phishing email. We put a button in Outlook right on the ribbon that says click here and report a phishing email. It even has a little picture of a fish on it. So that, And then we integrated that with our SOC automation tools. So once a user clicks on that button, it goes through an automated workflow where the SOC checks, they see whether or not it is a phishing email. If it really is a phishing email, there's automated steps to see if somebody's actually clicked on that email to look through and see who else has received it. And that's, I won't say it's 100% automated, but it's pretty close. So we've made it really, really easy when a user sees something to say something and then take quick action on it. So we're trying to increase that level of sophistication that somebody has to have, that they'd have to create separate individual phishing emails. That's expensive. It's harder for them, right? Go somewhere else. Go fish somebody else. We'll just leave it at that. So second, we have a robust internal program, training program, where we regularly train our users on what phishing emails look like, how to look and see. And we have regular tests where we send out test phishing emails and we see who clicks on the link, who doesn't click on the link and who reports it. And when they report it, they get a little pop up that says, hey, great job. You detected our phishing email. We have actually had some challenges with this program. The challenge is, is that we've had to make the phishing emails that we send out internally increasingly more sophisticated mm -hmm. because not enough people are clicking on the links. Like our users are getting really, really good at figuring out what's a phishing email. So I, I guess it's working. It's causing us a little bit more work. We're having to make them better. But again, you know, great credit to all of the folks in the agency and to the really to the importance that they place on it and the understanding. The third, management involvement and recognition at all levels. And when I 
say all levels, I really do mean all levels of the agency, from local staff all the way up to and including the director of the agency. My boss, Shane, our chief information security officer, he gets regular invitations from different organizations throughout the agency, asking him to come to their all hands and talk with them about cybersecurity, about phishing specifically, and what they can do at their level to ensure that we remain secure. And in terms of recognition, I've seen specific instances when employees have recognized, detected, and reported particularly sophisticated phishing emails. Those employees have been recognized at the director level for because of how important we view this. And that level of involvement and recognition really trickles down and makes a, a great impact throughout the agency. So we've got reducing your attack surface, raising the cost of the attackers. Now let's talk about response time. So there, again, Somebody eventually will click. We've made it a lot easier for people to report. When somebody does click, how do we respond? We've invested in some tools at the individual workstation level where we can quarantine things a lot faster, a lot more quickly. We've invested in automation tools for our SOC so that when they get alerted to something, they can respond more quickly. Again, really focus on reducing that response time. And then the final piece there is, is creating those feedback loops. And there, what we're looking to do, and we're really moving forward on this, I'm really excited about some things that we're, we're talking through internally, is creating what I'm calling these soft breaking opportunities. Traditionally in security, we break things hard, right? Security says stop and it no longer works, right? What we're looking to do is create what I'm calling, again, soft breaking opportunities. As I talked a little bit about earlier, at scale, it's really tough, right, for us to get down to the level of an individual device. But users use individual devices every single day. They're at that level. So what we're looking to do is, is create opportunities where we can have our users, instead of us having to go and notify them, they go and notify us. So we're looking at things like pop-ups and click-through warnings where we can detect that the device hasn't received the patches on schedule. It could have been just something as simple as they were off and hadn't connected to the network in a couple of days. It took some well-deserved vacation. And this is their first day back. So we're going to create some of those soft breaking opportunities where they get a warning. And if they see that for a couple of days, then they'll go and call their local IT support and say, hey, you know what? There's something wrong with my device. Could you come in and could you fix it? I'm not getting the patches that I'm supposed to get. Isn't that great when you have your user community that's coming to you to ask you those questions rather than you having to go track them down? And also, it doesn't stop their work. They can get then schedule it for a time that's convenient to them while we maintain and make sure that everything does get patched. So that's that feedback loop. And, you know, we're looking at a lot of different options. That's just one of the options that we're looking at. So that's that. So I've talked for a long time about defending endpoints. You still have to defend your systems, right? Right. After you've done all that, something could still happen. We don't want to be like an M&M, you know, or I don't know, pick your favorite candy with the crunchy outside and then the soft, wonderful inside. You know, we want to be hard all the way through and through. And so, you know, again, patch your servers. Make it really hard for people to go after your servers after they've gone after your desktops. Make sure you understand what your configurations are. Make sure that you utilize secure configurations. The DISA STIGs are a great example of that, where DOD has really for a long time led the way in establishing very secure configurations by default. Really improve your privileged access management game. You know, you have to protect not only the servers, you've got to protect the, the administrators that access those servers and the credentials that they use to access those servers. 
CDM program has an entire phase two, right? Know who is on your network is entirely or at least significantly devoted towards improving privilege access management because of how important that is. And really take steps to prevent configuration drift. My penetration testers are great fans of configuration drift. They're really good at finding that one server that we thought that we patched or that one server where we thought we applied the configuration and we didn't, right? And, you know, if my pen testers can find it and capitalize on it, an adversary could. That's why we want to really take those steps to prevent that configuration drift, use our automated tools so that it gets fixed. And then the last thing you talked a little bit about is defending data. Huge now. topic in government right now. Huge topic everywhere right now. Yeah. And let me tell you, I mean, that's that's a super, super deep question. Because when you're talking about defending data, and I'm separating it from defending the system that houses the data, you really start to get into the questions of how much data do people need in order to do their job? And how do you protect it? How do you know what they've looked at? And, and how do you know whether or not that's normal? How do you detect if there's an account compromise? That's really important, right? You can't always assume that the user that's accessing that system is in fact the user. Their account could be compromised, right? So what we really started talking about is this concept that I've turned horizontal and vertical data access. So horizontal is you get all of the information about something. Great example of that is when our immigration officers adjudicate an immigration petition. They have to look through the information on a specific case, and they have to look through all of the information, right? That is what we have to do. We're a vetting agency. We have to vet those benefits. And they may have to look through information in related cases. That's absolutely what we do. And then we make a, a decision based on that. They don't necessarily then have to access all at once, at least, every piece of information about every case that we've ever done. Now, they may need access to any individual case, right? But they don't need access to 100,000 cases, again, all at the same time. Now, then if you look at vertical data, right, that would be like a statistical analysis. That's information on like a zip code, for instance, mm -hmm. where we're looking at where we're going to put a new, a new field office or a new application support center or something like that, right? And we're looking at where are we receiving immigration benefit requests from. And so we want to put our offices in the locations where we're getting the requests from. That's just common sense, right? So there you would have someone and they would need to have access to information on all of the zip codes, right? Every benefit request that of a particular type that's come in in, say, the last two, three years, right? But zip code information. But they don't need necessarily to know the names of all those people, right? Or other information. So that's that vertical data, right? And that's also information about like, hey, how many cases do we have that are in a particular stage? So that's that vertical information. So what we're trying to do is, is really look at how can we separate out horizontal data access. So we're providing the right information to our immigration officers from the vertical data access where we're providing the right information to our, our analysts so that each one of them gets the information they need for their job, but nobody gets access to all of the information all the time, all at once. And that's really part of that key about how you protect data. I'll just say it's something we take very, very seriously. There's a lot of long conversations late at night amongst us about how we can do this better and, and how we can really approach the problem in a structural manner.
Shell, I'll jump to talking about penetration testing teams because you mentioned them in your, your first answer. You've called your penetration testing teams extremely creative. What lessons have you learned through penetration testing that you can pass on to other agencies? I know it's something we hear about a lot, both in terms of successes and I guess what I'd call wishful successes, but hoping they know what to look for and what to gain from penetration testing. So I think the biggest thing that I personally have learned is that vulnerabilities they frequently aren't CVEs, right? When we when we do vulnerability scanning, usually we find a, a system defect and there's a CVE number associated with it and it tells us how it could be exploited. And one of the things that I've learned from our my penetration testing team is how they're able to make creative use of how the system is designed in order to attack the system. And it's not something that ever comes up as a vulnerability in one of the tools. Tools, for example, they can't catch weak service account passwords or weak user passwords, right? They can make sure that you've changed them recently, but they can't look at them and tell you that, you know, it's an English word or something like that. Now, if you have a secrets management capability, again, that makes it a lot easier to set strong ones, but it's difficult to, you know, really test them one by one and make sure of that. Pen testers find those types of things. They find that you have six or eight or 10 servers and nine of them are all configured the same and configured with the secure configuration. And the one of them isn't. They'll find that your pre-production environment or a non-production environment, I should say, is not configured with exactly the same settings, but maybe there's a route in through that non-production environment to a production environment. They're the ones that find all those things and they're not the types of things that you necessarily always think to look for. And so the thing that I've really learned from them is they've taught me more about how to broaden what it is that we start looking for and the questions we start asking. You start thinking with their mindset. So that's one benefit. And and that's something that I've learned. Another key benefit, I think, and why I recommend this to everyone is they'll give your SOC some needed practice. Hopefully, your sock is like the second coming of the Maytag repair man, you know, where he just kind of sits there with the dog and, and they're kind of in that rut of dealing with phishing emails and watching internet background radiation, you know, people mm-hmm. who are scanning your public websites for default credentials, SQL injection, directory first, all that kind of good stuff. I mean, if it's on the internet, it's going to get scanned by somebody. So a lot of times they're there looking at the things that they see all the time. And this gives them an opportunity to really have to look and and see and experience something different. I'll hope for everybody who's listening that their sock is out of the practice of dealing with an intruder who's gained a foothold on a machine, because hopefully it's not happening. And if your sock isn't out of practice, you probably have are having a very bad day or have had a lot of series of bad days. We do listening to Cybercast. <laughs> Go fix it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. So one of those key benefits is it gives your SOC that needed practice. And you can then start learning from that. And, and did your SOC detect when uh, your pen test deployed that exploit? Or even if the exploit failed to work, did your SOC detect the scanning activity? And then what's really great is after the fact, we've had our SOC sit down with our pen testers and walk through on both sides. And the pencilers would say, well, hey, we were doing this at this time. And the SOC would say, okay, well, yeah, we saw this. And, oh, is that what that means? And so we've there's been a lot of real, a lot of learning 
you know, they've learned what does data exfiltration look like? What does command and control traffic look like? And it's one thing to read about it. It's a whole nother thing to see examples and logs and have to pull out what's malicious traffic from what's ordinary user traffic. So that's really, really been important and interesting. And the final thing I think is, is it's taught us a lot about where our tools are capable and where they're less capable. And I'll be honest, in, in several cases, we've been very pleasantly surprised. For example, we purchased a tool that helps us detect when accounts have been compromised. And so, like any good deputy CISO, I took a page from President Reagan, trust, but verify. And so we tested it. We simulated an account compromise. What we didn't anticipate there was how good it was at helping, not only did it detect the account compromise, now that was what it was supposed to do. What we didn't anticipate is how good it was at helping the SOC figure out how the extent of the compromise. And so we gave our pen testers, we spotted them some user accounts under, under pseudonyms because our pen testers, obviously they have regular user accounts and our SOC knows who they are and they may or may not occasionally watch for them to see what they're up to. Mm -hmm. You know, all good, all good. So we gave them some, some pseudonyms. We didn't want to make it a gimme. And we also spotted them a couple of machines that we let them, them compromise and then deploy as, as kind of a head start, right? And we didn't, we told the SOC that we were going to do an account compromise pen test, but we didn't tell them where it was going to occur. We didn't tell them exactly when it would occur. We gave them a kind of a time frame, but mm -hmm. not anything real specific. So with the tool, the, the SOC figured it out fast enough that the first warning we had that the pen testers had, because I was sitting with them, the SOC had figured it out as all of a sudden their machines got quarantined, their accounts got disabled, and I got a phone call on my cell phone from my SOC, and they were laughing at uh, my choice in uh, movie references <laughs> because we had named the pseudonym accounts after characters in a movie that had in the movie had involved hacking computer systems. You may have heard of it, sneakers. So we named those pseudonym accounts after characters in sneakers. And not only had they done it and looked it up in IMDb and were cracking up laughing about it. And that's how we found out. That's how quickly they had caught on to it. And so that's a great example. Again, it's a funny example, but it's a great example of the practice it gave to the SOC. And, and we learned some things about our tools and it gave us some confidence in things that we wouldn't have had before. It really helped us understand where our tools were strong, where our tools were weak, where the gaps were. And that's really, really important. So I know you've previously said that at USCIS, the job of modernization isn't complete until the old system is unplugged and hopefully crushed into a small cube and uses a paperweight. <laughs> That's my editorialization. <laughs> so why is modernization so important? And why is it so important to go through the full steps up to and including unplugging the system? And how is USCIS approaching security and its modernization efforts? Which, again, I realize is a very deep question. So, <laughs> so you're actually referencing one of my favorite quotes, that the system, modernization Organization isn't complete until you've unplugged the old one. And the reason I believe that statement's really, really important is because it focuses on that you have to complete the job. And the job of modernization isn't complete if you're still spending money on maintaining the old system, patching the old system, securing the old system, monitoring the old system, and providing support for the old system. Which is one of the biggest costs in government IT these Absolutely days. Absolutely is. And, and it's something that, you know, full credit. It's something I learned from, from Mark Schwartz, who's one of the former CIOs of, of USCIS. And I'll relay to you the story that, that 
he often told. Um, it was a story about early in, in his tenure as USCIS CIO, we had modernized one of our systems. We built a replacement. It was a good thing, right? And for whatever reason, he made a real point that he did not want to maintain the old system. He made a point that he wanted it decommissioned. He wanted it unplugged. He wanted it gone. And the story that he tells is that we had to look up the process. Like we hadn't decommissioned a system in so long. We didn't know how to do it. We didn't know what are all the right signatures. And then when we went up and we, we asked at higher levels in the organization, they'd never seen it at that point either. No one had ever decommissioned anything. And so we finally made it through. We decommissioned it. We unplugged it. We put all the signatures in place. We did it all by the book. And we threw a party. Because it was the first time that we'd actually done that. Now, we've done it a lot of times since, but it's really important to just finish that job. And let me, let me tell you kind of a, a, an illustrative story. So long, long time ago, and an immigration system far, far away now, but we had a system that we called NACS, and we used it to track naturalization cases. And then after that was on the mainframe, and after a few years later, we built a system called RNAX, Replacement Improvement for it. RNAX stood for re-engineered NACs. And then back in the 90s, we built a system called Claims 4, which was going to be our new system for processing naturalization cases. Well, and then like 20 years later, we implemented the naturalization functionality in Ellis, which is our flagship system for processing immigration applications. And we implemented the naturalization. And so as we're planning the, the data migration and how we're going to shift the workloads over from claims for into Ellis, one of the things that came up was Arnax was still running and still had active cases. And then as we dug into it, we discovered that Nax was still running oh, wow. and still had active cases. Now, I don't remember the exact number. It was a very small number. But the point I'm, I'm trying to drive home for my story is we had just kept modernizing and we'd never gone back and finally taken that last hard step of just finishing the job and pulling the plug. And so I think it's you know, really important that we focus that that job's not done until it's done. You have to have a plan and as you're modernizing the system for how the old system, how the work gets transferred and how the old system gets turned off. So in your time as a federal IT professional, what trends and evolving threats have you witnessed? And what about the solutions to those threats? And do you think those trends are changing at all? That's a good question. It's not an easy question. And I don't know that I've got a great answer for it, meaning something that is, is pithy nor, nor witty. I think the, obviously, I mean, we, we face significant threats from advanced persistent threats and nation states. We face threats from cyber criminals and, and script kiddies. There's a variety of, of different threats that we face. I think what has changed and what has made it more complicated and more interesting is the extent to which we, as a government writ large, have pushed more and more things to being available to the public. Just, you know, again, I'm trying to take a real step back here and think about things in a 20, 30 year mindset. But in the last 20 or 30 years, right, we really have had this amazing growth in e-government, right? There's lots of things now that you can do electronically that you could never do before. You had to write them down in paper. You had to go mail them in. You had to go walk somewhere and hand them to a clerk at a desk. And all of the IT processing was only ever 
accessible from inside the agency. Well, now with this growth of e-government, more and more things are available externally. And that means that the boundaries are a lot fuzzier than they ever were before. And that creates its own set of challenges. You know, certainly things are a lot more open than they were before. They're a lot more efficient, though, too. So, you know, I think it's just one of those you have to keep being mindful of, of how that threat landscape is changing, how people are likely to attack you. And you have to be looking not just for the things that you're seeing now, but looking for the things that you think you might be seeing in the future. Great. And I think that goes back to the penetration testing you were talking about earlier and thinking back to that. I know having a checklist of what to do if this system is compromised is one thing. Going through the muscle memory or making sure people know what to do before and being proactive is absolutely essential to security. No, absolutely. We have learned a tremendous amount about just the basics of incident management processes. And you do get better. The more you practice, the better you get at it, the more predictable you get at it. And you can really take advantage of those lessons learned. If you've never done it before, you don't get lessons learned because you've never done it. What is a major initiative or challenge in cybersecurity that you think is not being talked about or perhaps just not being talked about enough? There's enough conferences that I don't know that there's a, a topic in cybersecurity that somebody hasn't talked about a lot. That's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, machine learning is is definitely one a trend that's being talked about. It's one that's being talked about a lot. I think it's it deserves to be talked about that much. So I can't say that that's one that's not being talked about, but I think it's one that agencies really need to, to look at and consider and think about how they're going to apply machine learning to the problem of cybersecurity. I think data security and thinking structurally about data security is, is a really important piece. Really, when I look at the, the threats that we're facing, a lot of those threats are really revolve around data security. We've seen that with the number of high-profile breaches, both of government and the commercial sector. Data is a lot of times what adversaries are after. And so making sure that you're really paying attention to data security, to the confidentiality of it, to the integrity of it, and to the availability of it really is, is I think, going to be something that people are going to have to look to. And I think it's more difficult because it's going to be it's very individual to every organization. There's no one size fits all to data security. And so I think that makes it it harder. There's not a COTS product that you can buy. There's not a vendor who's going to come in, who's going to solve your problem in six easy steps. It's something that really you have to know your business, you have to know your systems, and you have to really sit down, think hard, and think strategically about Finally, as you change positions to Deputy CISO and Chief Cybersecurity Architect and look towards the future, what are you focusing on next? Understandably, you can't talk about specific threats, um, but generally speaking, what are the challenges you're preparing for or the opportunities that you're keeping in mind? So a lot of what we're looking for or looking towards is how we can make cybersecurity more seamless, how we can I think the example that I used previously with Enterprise Single Sign-On, we're looking for more opportunities like that, more opportunities where we can embed security at a structural le level and make it even easier for our end users. Find those win-wins. And, you know, I know that that's kind of a, a trite answer at times, but those are really the opportunities we're looking for is, is the opportunity to make computing accessible from where our users are to make it convenient for them and to make it secure for them and to do so in some structural ways. How can I improve configuration management at the desktop? Not just because there's a huge security benefit 
to it, but also because there's a huge operational benefit to it. If I'm improving patching and I'm improving configuration at the desktop, it means that my users aren't encountering as many errors. It means they're not having those system problems. And again, when IT is more reliable and more robust for them, that makes for happier users, right? Trying to find ways where we don't need to store data at, at endpoints, right? If users don't have data on their endpoints, then if their endpoint breaks and hardware problems occur, right, we can give them a new one and they can be up and running immediately. So it's those types of things that we're really thinking about, ways, ways in which we can make it better for the individual end user, really drive the security down. I know containerization is something that USCIS has had a lot of success implementing, and it's something many other agencies would like to emulate for their own systems. So what drove the move to containerization at USCIS, and how did the emulation process go? So I'm really excited about this one, because containerization is is something I'm really, really passionate about. So Mark Schwartz, one of our former CIOs, he drove that move towards containerization. He didn't drive it for a security reason. Although it definitely has, I think, some security benefits. But he drove it as a move toward, as a larger move to move USCIS towards microservices. And really what he was after there is finding ways to improve development team velocity and productivity. And the challenge that we were having is we had a lot of development teams that were all working on the same monolith, all working on the same very large code base, and they were kind of stepping on each other. And we were one person broke it, it breaks everybody and everyone's upset. Exactly. And 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 this problem of breaking changes where we change something in one area of the code base and then the other area of the code base wouldn't catch up and it just became kind of a real challenge for us. And what he said is he said, hey, look, let's break this into microservices so that instead of one big monolithic code base that we deploy as a unit, we deploy it instead as a bunch of little small things. Now, there, there are some drawbacks to that. It makes things a lot more complicated at times. But it also makes you be able to move a lot faster and deliver capabilities and features to your users a lot quicker. It also, in a way, promotes reuse because each one of those microservices now can be reused by other systems. And we are actually starting to see significant amount of reuse among our microservices. So we're really achieving some, some efficiencies there. Now, so that was why we moved towards containerization. Now, the reason why I get so excited about it, and you see my eyes light up about it, is because one of the key problems, and I've referenced this a couple of times, one of the key problems in information security is configuration management. Again, what's my theme? If you don't have to do it, it makes it a lot easier. So with yes. containerization, we're able to set up a dynamic where... I have a completely separate team that's now responsible for the operating system. They're responsible for all of the patching. They're responsible for that platform that the containers run on. So the container teams don't have to worry about that. So it's less for them to manage. I can give them standard container images that are already pre-configured for them so that the only thing they have to do is bring forward their code. That promotes a lot of consistency. It promotes a, a lot of configure, standard configurations. Again, why do I like that? means if I ever discover a defect, I have one place where I can go fix it and I fix it across everything very rapidly. And then it also prepares us for future moves towards functions as a service, where again, maybe we as an organization, maybe we don't even have to run the containers. Maybe it's just the code that's really key to our business processes. And maybe we can hand it off to a, a cloud vendor that has a FedRAMP ATO, and maybe we can give it to them to run and let them worry about 
all of those other things. And so again, we have less and less to worry about, less and less that we have to manage. And it's better for the dev teams, right? What do they have to worry about? They have to worry about the code. They have to worry about whether or not it works. They have to worry about the business functionality and they have to worry less about all of those other things. Thank you again for joining us and look forward to seeing more innovative security measures come out of USCIS in the future. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing and leaving a review at iTunes, Google, or wherever you get your podcasting content from. Cybercast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. It is hosted by James Mersall and produced by Amy Kluber. It is edited by Resonate Recordings. For more podcasts, head to governmentcio.com slash podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com. Mm-hmm.